for sale sign. Thought I'd say hi. Settling in okay? Oh, yeah. The house is great. Loving it. Yeah, well, I know you're new in town, so if you ever need anything or just want to grab coffee, seriously, just reach out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, take care. Smoking again? Smoking? No. Okay. Casually. Socially, I suppose. Socially? So you're making friends? Sure. Have you heard from... No, he's still not responding to my texts. How's that make you feel? Like it's not him? It's me? Like I'm broken or something. The more you get to know me, the more you realize that, I don't know, I'm not worth knowing. I feel worthless, discarded. That's how I feel. But you know, good riddance, right? Sometimes. Were you happy? No. I wasn't lonely. Hi, Natalie. Hope you're settling in well. I just wanted to check in again about when we can expect you in the office. It's been a few days since my last message, and we've yet to hear back from you. How's the new job? 
I, uh, I pushed my start date back a week. What did your employer think about that? I mean, I uprooted my whole life for them. I think they can wait. I've been thinking, there's something we haven't talked about in a while. Spirituality. Do you have a faith? Is there anything that you believe in? Yeah, I mean, I did, or at least I used to when I was a kid, back when it was simpler. Simpler? Yeah, I mean, everything was simpler back then, right? Is that what you're looking for? Simplicity? I mean, no, but if I'm going to believe in something, I want it to at least make sense. Natalie, what are you looking for? your new circumstances, I wanted to make sure I could still use the same credit card you have on file. Yeah, same card. Okay, great. Natalie, you take care of yourself, okay? That's very kind of you. Totally no pressure. I know it's last minute. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate it. I, I can't tonight. I'm still settling in. <laughs> I saw. I mean, I figured. Um, okay, then. Let me know if you need anything. Thanks. Oh, actually, um... Yeah? This is gonna sound strange, but... Do you know any good carpenters?
there. Uh, hi. Are you looking for me? No. Uh, I guess I must be the one that's looking for you then. Um, I'm just up the road. I uh, heard your horn. Oh. Yeah. Besides, nobody comes up this road unless they're looking to get something fixed. I was looking for you. Um, I have this table. Oh, well. Here it is. That's a beauty. Yeah, it was a gift. I'd hate to have to throw it away. Throw it away? You don't want to throw something away just because it's broke. Oh, that's okay. Flatliners are either too prepared or not prepared at all. Is this what you've made all this from? Most of it. It's amazing. I like to rethink things that well, most people would probably think are worthless or broken, forgotten or lost. In the right hands, a flaw can be the most beautiful part of something. It's what makes it special. That's a new beginning, don't you think? Oh well, that's how I believe that God thinks of me. to go, but I'm making progress. What do you think changed? I, I met someone. Go on. Well, not like that. I met someone who reminded me of something that I used to know. Just been running from disappointment to disappointment, feeling so broken. And my life now is so different than I thought it would be. Now I know that I am broken. We all are. But that doesn't mean we're not worth it. It doesn't mean we're not loved. It just means that we can't fix it by ourselves. We can't force it. We have to receive it and stop fighting it. I think there's real hope in that. Hope for what? A new beginning. I was thinking, watching that video on this Easter Sunday, that we are the people who live in between. We live in between the pain of it's over, give up, and the hope that in the right hands, a flaw can be the most beautiful part of something. 
I was thinking, watching Natalie, how human beings are like God and unlike any other creatures in our ability to imagine the future, but we're like all other creatures and unlike God in our inability to control the future. We live in between today and tomorrow, the beauty and the flaw, being broken and getting fixed, the virus and the cure. And so we got to hope. We are hope-based creatures. We can't not think about the future. And so we can't live without hope. Dante said the sign over hell read, abandon hope, all you who enter here. And man, if we ever needed hope, we need it now. Pandemic, recession, isolation, you've lost your job or your home or you're alone or afraid. This is the first time in our nation's history we can't gather for Easter. Our need for hope, I think, is at an all-time high. But here's the thing about hope. Let's imagine for a moment you could go to one of two friends to tell you about the future. One of them would tell you what would make you feel good. The other would tell you the truth, even if it made you feel awful. Which one would you go to? Well, you'd go to the one who would tell you the truth. I just read about this. You know who's got the highest approval rating in America right now? Dr. Fauci. 79-year-old doctor, lived his whole life in obscurity, has become a national hero because we all want to know what's really going to happen. It doesn't matter how hopeful a message is if it's not truthful. We have to live in reality. So we need not just hope, that, but truthful hope, real hope. And that brings us precisely to Easter. People often expect at Easter to go to church and hear a feel-good, optimistic, warm, fuzzy message about hope. But this year, you're not in church, you're at home. And way too much is at stake, especially this year, just to settle for a temporary mood lifter. So I want to talk today, especially to you, if you're looking for hope, but you're not really sure that the Easter message could be genuinely truthful. I want to talk especially to you if faith in God or belief that a man resurrected from the dead sounds more like wish fulfillment than like reality. Now, if people don't believe that the resurrection happened, they still have to account for where did the idea of Easter come from? How did the church actually get started? And often people will claim something like this, that after Jesus died, his followers felt hopeless and sad. When they remembered his life and his teaching, it was so vivid, it was like his spirit was still with them. And over time, that feeling morphed into a kind of legend of resurrection. And people back in the ancient world were gullible and pre-scientific, so they just believed it. It made him feel good. Sigmund Freud and others famously critiqued faith as really nothing more than wish fulfillment. But what's very striking, what makes that particular quite popular account virtually impossible, is that for the people who experienced that first Easter, it was not a warm, fuzzy, feel-good event at all. In our day, in a largely secular and temporal culture, the big question generally for folks is, is there life after death? And very often, people in our day think that's the main point of the Easter story, that Easter is about proving that there's life after death, so we don't have to fear dying. That is not 
how it was experienced by people on the day the resurrection happened. Not at all. In fact, on the day it happened, according to all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, belief in the resurrection of Jesus on that first day did not produce a decrease of fear. It produced an increase of fear. In the Gospel of Mark, the women see the empty tomb, and they're told by an angel that Jesus is risen, and they should go tell the disciples. And here is their response. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And by the way, that's actually the last verse in the book of Mark. Not a warm, fuzzy ending. In Luke, we're told that at the empty tomb, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. And even after Jesus had appeared to Peter and then later came to his disciples, it says they were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost. In fact, the Gospel of John says that even after some of the disciples had seen and believed Jesus was risen, they were still hiding in a room behind locked doors because of their fear. A great New Testament scholar named Tom Wright puts it like this. It is extremely strange and extremely interesting that at no stage do the resurrection narratives in the gospel mention the future hope of the Christian. In other words, not one single person on Easter Sunday responds to the resurrection of Jesus by saying, hooray, my great existential problem with death has been solved. My wish for the afterlife has been granted. I have nothing to be afraid of now. Not at all. Later on in the New Testament, we see the idea that Jesus' resurrection means hope for our resurrection too. Later on, we get these unforgettable words, like from the Apostle Paul, many years later, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? But not on Easter. On the first day on Easter, they knew he was resurrected. And that meant he was vindicated. That meant his teaching was true and his identity was validated. That meant the game, the movement wasn't over. But initially, on that first day, that's all they knew. For them, it meant more work. For them, it meant more danger. We see this in the Gospel of Matthew. It says, on that first day of the resurrection, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Joy, because somehow he was alive, but afraid because this meant, now, women, you go face the same Romans who just killed me. Tell them it didn't take. Tell them the movement is still going. Tell them our capacity to suffer and love has not nearly been exhausted. Tell them they're gonna have to go by a lot more crosses. That's why their response on that first day was this combination of joy and terror. Christ is risen. This is great. Oh, no. Christ is risen. This is great. Oh, no. The tomb is empty. We're all going to die. Christ is risen. I got to get out of here. Easter meant they had work to do. We see this in almost a comical way when the risen Jesus comes to a weeping Mary Magdalene at the tomb. The text tells us, Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. 
This is unbelievable. He shows up to this weeping woman, says to her one word, Mary. She's stunned. Jesus is alive. She wants to hug him, embrace him, absorb it, take it in. And his only response is, don't be a clinger, Mary. Nobody likes a clinger. You got work to do. You're the whole church right now. Like in that moment, Mary was the church. So go spread the word. Go be the church. So whatever you think of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, understand this. Whatever they were, they were not a story of people getting their wishes for immortality fulfilled. They were the story of people who were stunned against all expectation with the conviction that Jesus was somehow alive at what would be enormous personal cost to them. The most logical reason why they believe Jesus was alive is Jesus was alive. The resurrection was an earth-shattering, history-altering event that forced the disciples to understand the meaning of Jesus' life and death in a completely new way. The resurrection happened overnight, but their understanding of it did not happen overnight. The initial message on the resurrection day was not, Christ is risen, now you have immortality. It was, Christ is risen, now you have a quite dangerous and costly purpose. Gang, we're beginning a series on hope this weekend, Easter weekend. And the root Easter, many people do not understand this, when it comes to Christian hope, is not, will my future be pleasant? It's not even, will my future be unending? It's, does my life have meaning? We have to have meaning to live. Meaning is not optional to human life. It is spiritual oxygen. You cannot survive without it. But meaning can only be determined from the larger context. The meaning of present events in human life is mostly a matter of what comes after. We don't know it yet. Meaning is always this way. It's this way with language. You have to have context to know what any given word means. For example, take the word date. Is date a noun or a verb? Well, it depends on the context. You can't tell just from the word. When I was in school, my teachers would say, put today's date on your paper. Then it would be a noun. My friend Rick would say, let's get a date shake. Then it would be an adjective. Girls would say to me, I don't want to date you. Let's just be friends. That's a verb, a verb of despair. Meaning can only be determined by the larger context. You have to read the whole sentence and then the whole paragraph and then the whole book. And it's the same way with the events of your life. Somebody breaks up with you. You meet a stranger on the side of a road or you have a cough, or a broken table. Only with time, with context, do you understand the meaning of these events. Every life by itself is an unfinished sentence. So we all wonder as we look, because our lives have this fragmentary feel to them. What does it mean? Does it mean anything? Now, the dominant secular view in our day is probably not, you're probably just a random blob of tissue in an accidental cosmos in a nanosecond of time without meaning or significance. The thinker Nietzsche expressed his understanding of the human condition unforgettably like this. He said, 
In some remote corner of the sprawling universe, twinkling among the countless solar systems, there was once a star on which some clever animals invented knowledge. It was the most arrogant, most mendacious minute in world history, but it was only a minute. After nature caught its breath a little, the star froze, and the clever animals had to die. And it was time to, for although they boasted of how much they had come to know, in the end they realized they'd gotten it all wrong. They died, and then dying cursed truth. Such was the species of doubting animal that had invented knowledge. And that's one line of thought, very prominent in our day. There is no larger context to give meaning or hope. There is no story. There is no book. This is just a rock with some clever little animals. And one day, after nature catches its breath, when the star freezes or the universe implodes back in on itself, all the clever little animals will die and nothing will have mattered at all. The final word will be, it's over, give up, throw it away. But Jesus taught it is not so. Jesus taught your life has meaning. And you know this is true because you were made by God and are loved by God. We hunger for food. Now that doesn't prove that food exists, but it would be strange if hunger emerged in a universe without food. We thirst for water. Doesn't prove water exists, but it would be odd for thirst to emerge without anything to drink. We hunger for meaning. Doesn't prove that meaning exists, but it would be strange if a hunger for meaning emerged in a meaningless universe. And Jesus says, your story can be fixed by setting it in God's larger story of love and grace and forgiveness. Jesus provoked a lot of controversy and eventually was crucified. And it looked like he was just one more clever little animal on the rock. But then came Sunday and the resurrection and the rock got rolled away. And to their astonishment, his followers had to go back over everything he ever said and did and taught to understand his meaning anew in light of this earth-shattering event. One of my favorite movies of all time is called The Sixth Sense. Bruce Willis, if you've never seen it, plays a psychologist working with a little boy who's terrified because the boy sees dead people. Only they don't know they're dead. And Bruce Willis, with his wisdom and compassion, saves the little boy, teaches him he has a purpose. There's a meaning to his fear. And of course, what Bruce Willis doesn't know is he himself is one of the dead people. And when you're watching and that secret is revealed at the end of the movie, it's like your head just explodes. It was actually quite brilliant because anybody who saw the movie once had to watch it a second time. The second time through, every scene, every line of dialogue, every moment is different and has a deeper significance because this time you know the secret that he has already passed through death. By the way, if you've never seen it, you don't need to bother now. I just saved you four hours. See, for the disciples, it was just like that. After the resurrection, they had to go back and replay all that Jesus said, all that Jesus did, but especially, especially the cross. The cross had looked like the triumph of hatred and despair. That's what the cross meant on Friday. That's what the cross meant on Saturday. But on Sunday, on Sunday, the cross got placed in a new context of resurrection and life and God and everything changed.
On Sunday, they saw the meaning. Jesus wasn't the victim. He was the victor. Love wasn't defeated. Love won. On Sunday, the tomb was emptied, but the cross was filled with grace and beauty and forgiveness and power such that it has become by far the most famous and inspiring symbol in all of history, as Jesus knew it would, because it's true. In the right hands, a flaw can be the most beautiful part of something. And now what this means for you is, you are not just a clever little animal waiting for the star to freeze. Jesus' friends, Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not any hope. It's not just hope. It is living hope. Hope has a name. That name is Jesus. And the resurrection, which has already come to Jesus, is coming soon to a theater near you. Every week in this series, we're going to learn hope-building practices. We're going to live in a living hope. For this week, it's the act of surrender. If I surrender my life and my will to him, if I repent of my sin and follow him and die to my ego, paradoxically, I too can be born again into this living hope. So I'd like to ask you real personally, what are you putting your hope in? You will put it somewhere. There was an article in last Sunday's Chronicle about how billionaires are building bunkers to shelter in till the danger of the virus is passed. One of them is 13,000 square feet with a shooting range, bowling alley, movie theater, gym, and greenhouse. Anybody want to guess what area in the country it was built in? That would be the Bay Area. And the builder had this unforgettable quote. So many people procrastinate. The time to buy a bunker is when you don't need it, not when you do. The silver lining of COVID is it's a wake-up call to the world of just how fragile our existence is. So go buy that bunker. You can go right on bowling and watching Netflix while the world goes to hell. That's one kind of hope. Hope in your resources and intelligence to wait out the virus because You know, eventually all the clever little animals are going to die. There's another picture of hope somebody from our church just sent me. This is a picture of a group of women in Duma, Syria, one of the most hellish places on earth right now. And they have laid a feast of love from what little they had on a carpet on the bombed out rubble and invited others with less to join them. And if Jesus were here, I don't think he'd be bowling in the bunker. I think he'd prepare a feast on the carpet in the rubble. Where are you going to put your hope? I'd like to give you a chance to decide that right now on this Easter. If you're ready to belong to Jesus, to name him as your hope, I'd like to invite you to close your eyes right now, right there in your living room, in your kitchen, in your bedroom, wherever you are, all by yourself or whoever you're with, and pray right now from your heart this prayer of surrender to him. Jesus, I don't understand everything, 
But today, I surrender my life to you. I'm grateful that you would die on a cross out of forgiving love. I ask you to forgive my sins and give me a new story. I ask you from this day forward, become my forgiver and my friend. Amen. If you have done that, I am so glad for you. I can't even tell you. There is, Jesus said, a party going on in heaven right now for you. You really have passed from death to life. You have a hope, a living hope that will not be taken away. If you've made that decision, I want to encourage you, let somebody know that you've made this commitment. Our whole purpose as a church is to help people find and follow this Jesus. So we'd love to partner with you in your spiritual growth. You can let us know in just a minute or two about any decision that you have made or any need that you have, and, and we'd love to be a help if we could. One way we could do that is to learn together to become students of hope. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to learn what makes hope strong, and then we'll learn how do you grow hope, and then we'll learn what do you do when hope dies, and we'll learn how do you hope in suffering, how do we become agents of hope to others. I hope you'll be a part of that. Our world needs hope. I want to end with this. On this day, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, for 2,000 years, on every continent, in every culture, every language, people have gathered, and somebody says, Christ is risen. And all the people shout out, He is risen indeed. This year, for the first time in the history of our nation, we're not gathered. We're scattered. But that's okay. As long as the tomb was empty, it doesn't matter if church buildings are. So this year, I want to let you say it right where you are. Just between you and God. Maybe you want to stand up and raise your arms and shout it. Maybe you want to sit down and close your eyes and whisper it. But here we go. Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And I'll see you next week, right here, as we learn to become world-class hopers.